If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Elaine, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 170 of Classic Conversations, where we just don't have conversations. We've got classic conversations, and we got a hilarious one for you today. Actor and comedian and author and podcaster Mark Schiff is here. Yes, that is right. You heard me correct. Mark Schiff, host of his very own podcast, You Don't Know Schiff, co-author of I Killed True Stories of the Road from America's Top Comics that he wrote with Rich Scheidner a previous guest on the podcast, and author of Why Not? Lessons on Comedy, Courage, and Chutzpah, available for pre-sale. And coming out in November, Mark Schiff is a lifelong friend of Jerry Seinfeld, shares a lot of stories about Jerry on the podcast, and Paul Reiser, Rodney Dangerfield, so many stories, chock full of stories this episode is. And that's coming up in just a few seconds. And in these precious few seconds, I want to hearken back to episode 168 with Jessica Zor. Such a fun conversation. Jessica, star of Gossip Girl, The Orville, and so much more. Check that out. Also, a bonus episode last week from Crossing the Streams, our live show segments taken from the live show, put into podcast format, and sent directly to your ears. TV binge-worthy shows for you to consider. Don't skip on the bonus episodes. They're awesome also. But let's focus on the awesomeness at hand. My guest, Mark Schiff, legendary comedian. Jerry Seinfeld calls him the funniest, brightest stage comics he has ever seen. Paul Reiser loves him too. Says there is nobody funnier. I am super excited to share my conversation with Mark Schiff with you. And that's coming up right now. Enjoy. All right, everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, comedian, actor, writer. You've seen him on The Tonight Show, Evening at the Improv, HBO special, Showtime special, comedy legend, Mark Schiff. Welcome to the show, Mark. How are you? Hello, Jeff. Nice to be here, buddy. Good to have you here. Nice to be here. I'm glad uh, you're feeling good. Pretty good. Not bad. Not bad. I'm doing good. Just the normal... Jewish complaints, but that's that's about it. Nothing. <laughs> yeah, you never hear a Jew going. You say to him, "How are you?" Fantastic. <laughs> so great. Unbelievable. Great. <laughs> I'm making all the money I need. My wife is as friendly as any human being on the planet. <laughs> My kids are just dream boats. My car never ever needs gas. <laughs> this steak is perfectly cooked. <laughs> steak is perfectly cooked. The air conditioner bill is low. <laughs> <laughs> you were in one of my favorite parts of the world. Oh, yeah? You're a big Michigan fan? Or well, just Midwest? Detroit. In general. Jer- I love Detroit. You know, I got the, my uh, a lot of my comedy chops were cut in Detroit at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. It was in a few different places, Nine, Nine Mile and Woodward, 
and downtown. And I love Mark Ridley's. Yeah, he, he was so good to me and so great. And uh, I remember his wife, uh, she opened a donut shop there one time and Mark would bring donuts in. He didn't pay us much money. He would give us donuts. I, I think the pay might be exactly the same now as it was. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, I was there the night that Tim Allen got out of jail and he came straight to the comedy castle to hang out. Tim was in jail for drug sales and then he uh, came to the comedy castle to hang out. That's awesome. Yeah, I, it's funny. I met Tim Allen at the Comedy Castle. He came to see Louis Black. I was seeing Louis Black, and Tim Allen walks in. And I said to Mark Ridley, I was friends with Mark Ridley from doing the club so much. I said, You got to introduce me to Tim Allen. <laughs> and right. I just remember Tim Allen's like, Hi, I'm Tim Allen. And I'm like, <laughs> Of course you are. <laughs> but I thought no, it was cool. Were. I thought that was cool that he, he didn't assume I knew who he was. What was he like coming back? I mean, because this is who, who else was there? Couillé, all those. Like, what other comedians were there when he came back from out of jail? You know, I I, uh, I was there. Were you hanging out with others? I mean, because I know no, other that, was people, my, that was were you headlining. Yeah, otherwise I, I would not be there. But I was headlining that week, and I can't remember who else was there. I have no uh, memory. I did a Showtime special with Tim Allen and Bobby Slayton, and um, we flew to uh, Reno, and then you because you can't really fly into Tahoe. It was up in Tahoe, the thing. So we flew into Reno and then uh, we took a, a limo. They drove us up to the uh, up to Tahoe. And I used to be a bit of a prankster. And I remember I called ahead. And, you know, when you get to a hotel, you, you go to the desk and check in. And I called ahead and I canceled Tim's uh, reservation. <laughs> so he gets up to the front desk. He goes, hi, because uh, my idea, Tim Allen. I'm sorry, you, you canceled it. What? And he just, uh, and then we worked it out. <laughs> But he was he was so upset. That's really funny. That was my mo. I was say, you know, one other thing we did in uh, in Detroit. Tell me, I was coming through from Canada, and you got to go through customs. Right, right, right. So we called ahead, and I was working with another comedian, Peter Patowski was his name, and um, we planned that Peter would be arrested by customs, <laughs> and you know the customs knew like the comedy club owners, because every week he had another two, three people flying in and over a period of years and they got to know each other. So they, they did this thing where they arrested Peter at the border. I went in to talk to him and they put him in a little holding cell. I said, Peter, there, you know, come clean, man. What did you do? I didn't do anything, man. I didn't do Really? How about your family members? Or like maybe, you know, did they do something and, and give your name? I didn't do anything. And he was just, um, <laughs> finally, we, we let him know that it was a whole, ruse and he wasn't arrested we had just uh, done this to him and uh, he was a good sport about that some of these can really backfire in the face those are two that actually worked out well well the border is kind of a scary place i having lived in detroit or you know just outside detroit and i would do clubs in windsor canada and so when sure. you grow up in detroit just so everyone knows i'm going back you know 70s 80s 90s before 9 11 i should say going to canada if you live in detroit was no different than just going to any anywhere you just would go you right. didn't need a passport it was nothing so you don't even think nothing. of it as a foreign country almost it's just so easy to go but the people at the border are the most powerful people in the world i mean meaning like they decide <laughs> if you come or go and if they don't like you, I've been stopped at the border. It's it's a very intimidating thing to get out of your car and be standing there and waiting to determine if they're going to let you go or not, tear apart your car. It's uh, It can get nerve-wracking. So Very nerve-wracking. You could have scared Peter pretty bad there. <laughs> yeah. I remember one time, you know, Windsor, guys get a lot of snow. And I had 
down a club in Windsor, and I don't remember the name of it, but they put me up in some home in the basement. They had an apartment in the basement for comedians. And it was like three steps down this little thing. And then you go in the door. And I went to sleep one night and I woke up about 30 inches of snow and my door was blocked in and all the windows, the snow had gone up over the windows. If you went up the stairs and tried to open the, the door that leads down to the basement, that was locked. So I just, just saw myself being, you know, snowed in here forever and nobody finding me and finding me dead, you know, just a skeleton with a notebook with jokes next to me. It was... <laughs> Start writing your best material in case that's how the, that's the last thing they find. <laughs> Really extraordinary. But yeah, oh yeah, yeah. We get, uh, we haven't gotten as much snow as like the East Coast lately. Like you hear like, they'll get like 18, 20 inches. We'll get a dust in. But but yeah, Canada too, with the lake effect snow, it can be a doozy. Once you get a bit older, every person has the same story. When I was a kid, the snow was really something. (laughs) Let me tell you something. You never seen snow like I saw when I was five. (laughs) We had to walk uphill both ways. Ah. (laughs) <laughs> my father walked into a snowdrift. never saw him again <laughs> it was unbelievable oh so funny have you been back to mark ridley's comedy castle anytime recently but years ago i did a couple of uh i never came back for a week but i came back to do private shows one time ridley uh hired me because i work clean very clean and he hired me to do a show for a bunch of nuns that were raising money for an orphanage there somewhere in detroit or somewhere And in the audience were all these nuns and all these priests. And I worked very clean, not an issue with me. But the guy that went on before me, Ridley did not uh, fact check this guy. And the guy went on and started talking about the priests, uh, you know, having sex and the the nuns, you know, in orgies. It was really, it was was insane. It was insane. I've had that a couple of times. I remember I did a synagogue and they they put us in the... uh, in the, in the temple there and the, at the Torah behind us in the ark and this comedian goes up and MF this and F this, you know, and it was just crazy. You know, people don't have a, uh, they don't understand sometimes that certain places you just, or certain, certain audience go easy. Right. You, you oh yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. I, the one time I was told to work super clean was Mark Ridley's and I don't consider myself a dirty comedian, but it's nice to have a little bit of a heads up. That's true. Not, hey, oh, by the way, this is a, a church group. Let's keep it perfectly clean, please. <laughs> a little prep time. Yeah. I remember I did that. And thank goodness, like two weeks earlier, I had a clean show that I had to do, a corporate clean show. So I actually had in my head a 20-minute scrub version of my act. I do the act at Mark Ridley's. Goes fine. That's the frustrating thing about being a comedian where you can be a little blue. When you do it clean and you still get the laughs, you're like, yeah, that works. Wow. It's It feels better even, I think. I walk into the bar. A woman walks into the bar after me and says, oh, my God, you're so great. Do you remember me? I was at that show two weeks ago. She was at the other clean show I did, the random show with 20 insurance people. And wow. this is the only two times she's ever seen me. <laughs> and it happened to be those two sets. You know, a comedian sitting at the bar and he just finished the second show. And this uh, person comes over and this woman comes over and says, boy, you are so funny. I want to take you back to my house and just have sex with you all night, do anything you want. And the comedian looks at her and goes, which show did you see? (laughs) I always wonder what the deal is. So true. The neurosis. Ah, man. That's something I, I, I stopped doing many years ago. Even if I feel I had a bad show, I used to do this when I was kind of new, probably for the first 15 years, people would go, hey, nice show. I go, nah, not really. I, I wasn't as good as I could be. I'm sorry. And I would make these ridiculous excuses and they don't want to hear that. They tell you nice show. What they want to hear is thank you. 
no excuses that you weren't as good as you could be. And I, I did that. No matter how bad my show is, it's generally not, but some days we're off. People come over and they go, yeah, that was a really great show. I go, thank you. That was uh, nice. I'm glad you were here. Glad you had a good time. It's none of the business what I'm thinking. I'm with you 100% on that. I I always feel like, I feel like I have a good perception of, I don't have laugh ears. Like I know like if it was good, if it was bad, it was if it was in the middle. And I always like to leave a show with how I felt about the show and not have it disrupted by how other people said it. Because it is right. weird when you feel like it wasn't great or you knew it was a B plus or, you know, and just because of how your delivery ended up going. And they're all like, that was amazing. <laughs> it doesn't make you feel great because you have that conflict in your head. And it's the same thing when you have a great show and maybe they don't feel, they feel intimidated to come up to you. So they don't come up to you. <laughs> and then you're like, wait a minute, I freaking killed. Come talk to me. <laughs> right. That's like, right. You have a great show and nobody, everybody's just rushing out of there to get the hell out. You know, even if I have a bad show, I don't even like to tell my wife, you know, I'll come home, she'll, how was your show? And I go, oh, it was good. Because I tell her I didn't have a great show. She thinks, oh, we're going broke. That's the end of his career. <laughs> it's all over. We're going to be homeless in a year because of him. So I try not to spread the wealth because I know the next show will be better. For me, my wife, it was always keeping her away from the, the shitty open mic gigs that I would do coming up, <laughs> that I would do a yeah. lot of. It was always come to Mark Ridley's, you know, the, the real, the show show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break. Thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my amazing conversation with Mark Schiff. We are about to talk about when friends see our shows early on in our careers. And we're back. But when you're coming up, they don't know how good you could be or how awful you are. You know, because I had that. My family would come to see me when I was kind of brand new and I was so bad and you know they were they were nice about it they would go you know you're better than the last time <laughs> I, I remember the first time I went on stage I did well I did you know and then I had my showcase and it was you know I took a writing class at the Mark Ridley's and and then I and I did amazing and then the next show I did so bad I tanked mm -hmm. so hard I remember my wife coming up to me going, oh my God, I don't even know how you're not crying right now. <laughs> like she could, that's how bad it was. And like a lot of people had come to see me to that show because they heard how funny I was from the sure. first two. And you never get those people back. That's who no. they think you are now. And here, 20 years later, that's, that's, oh yeah. Oh, Jeff's still doing yeah, the comedy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why he puts himself through it. Mm. I wrote a play with my friend, Steve Schaefer, who's also a wonderful comedian. The play was doing really well. People were loving it, standing ovations. And then one night we got these big wigs with a lot of money coming in, you know, people that could potentially move it to the next level. Worst performance of the entire run. <laughs> they just walked out of there so fast, you know, hiding their wallets. It was just awful. And uh, yeah, so, you know, those things happen. But I guess it was meant to be. Yeah, it's 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 hard when it, that timing, when you know, like, no, it was just so great a minute ago. Which play was that? It's called Married People. Married People? It played at the, uh, here in uh, Los Angeles for a couple of months. And it was, we raised the money on, uh, well, you know, one of those GoFundMe. Mm -hmm. GoFundMe, we raised like thirty. $5,000. In LA, you can put a play up for $35,000. We wanted to move it to New York, minimum two, 300,000. Oh, wow. And that's for a small little theater. It's all union. It's all criminals. And uh, we just couldn't get up to do to, to go there with it. So said I wrote a book. Is that the uh, I Killed with? No, okay. that was, I wrote that with Rich Scheidner. I Killed True Stories of the Road by uh, America's Top Comedians. 
It's on Amazon. It's been on Amazon for years. It was a top seller, got great reviews, and it's 200 road stories from comedians. Chris Rock, Seinfeld, Leno, you name it, comedians of that day were in there. I have a new book coming out called Why Not? Question mark Lessons on Comedy, Courage, and Chutzpah. And it's uh, 60 essays, a lot of memoir stuff, but a lot of road stuff, a lot of stories, my tales with famous people like Seinfeld and Leno and Catherine Hepburn and Bob Dylan and Anthony Hopkins, all the people I've met and spent time with. That's awesome. I love that you chose one of the hardest words for Gentiles to pronounce also, chutzpah. Chutzpah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I did a, a podcast and I goes, chuppets. <laughs> I didn't even bother telling him because I knew it was impossible. It's the, it's just hard. It's, I can't trill ours. So, you know, but like, no. it's, it's funny sometimes when, uh, people try, non Jews try and speak Yiddish. You kind of explain to them, like, try to pull phlegm from the bottom of your foot. <laughs> I know. It's funny how being Jewish just comes so natural to others. It's like, it's, they, they look at it, they, they look at a CH as a K. Where, where did that yeah. get? Or who learns that? Where did you learn that? Kutzma. Yeah. It's <laughs> so that's that's what I did on my COVID vacation. All right. So this is cool. And this is coming out later this year, right? November 1st, Apollo Publishers uh, were stepped up to the plate in New York and they're publishing the book. And these are the best people I've ever worked with in publishing or anything. They're just incredibly nice people. It's a small little boutique publisher, Apollo Publishers, and they don't do fiction. They do memoirs and book books and stuff like that. So they're, they're just fantastic. I got death. Uh, 35 uh, rejections before we, they stepped up to the plate. Wow. And the reje- yeah, the rejections were because I don't fit the uh, the modern day, uh, you know, I'm a, you know, older white guy. And, uh, you know, they would send back emails, you know, we're looking for people and this and that. And that's what, you know, it's their, their prerogative. They can look for anything they want, but I didn't fit their, uh, you know, their model. But this company stepped up coming out November the 1st. Why not? Lessons on comedy, courage, and chutzpah. It's stories need to be told. I mean, I think people are so focused on the now and like you have so many decades of just rich stories. That's why I like, I, like on my podcast, I love talking to people. And I love sharing old stories and kind of really diving into like the history of things <laughs> and understanding. And I know you, I know on your podcast, you don't know Schiff. You do the You same. don't know Schiff. You don't know Schiff. I love that. People love that name. You know, it took us like a month to come up with the name. We had a thousand names we worked on. And then we finally hit on this. That was hard for me. When I was growing up, your last name, how do you pronounce it? Dwaskin. Dwaskin. Okay. Did kids make fun of you? Well, Dworkin, Dworkis. There was a uh, a veterinarian, Dr. Dworkis, so that people would throw ours in. Foreskin, I think, is uh, one that people find clever. Good one, Foreskin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would have thought of that. Maybe when I was younger, I would have thought of a uh, <laughs> Yeah. I had shift shit. You know, it's just, it was very painful growing up and it was hard for me to go. You don't know shift because it reminded me of the awful hazing that they did to me when I was growing up with my name, shiftless, shifty, swifty. But anyway, we landed on, it was a great name. You know, one of the stories in the uh, book, if you don't mind, I'll tell you. Yeah, I would love to. So, you know, Seinfeld has a, a big car collection. Mm-hmm. Got a Porsches and Volkswagens and Mercedes. So when we go on the road together, we sometimes we go to a car place, not a new one, but where they had like, you know, classics and stuff, just to look. So we're in Indianapolis and uh, Jerry, we're walking by this place and there's all these 60s, 70s, uh, you know, supercars in the, in the window there. And he goes, let's go in. So we go in, we're looking around. And about five minutes later, I'm looking around, and these are the hottest cars, Camaros and Mustangs and Le Mans, you name it, GTOs, just mint, pristine. 
And he says to me, you know, Mark, pick out anything you want to buy it for you. So I said, really? He goes, yeah, anything you want. And he goes, walks away and talking to the owner. And I sat in one car and another car and another car. And I landed on this uh, GTO, this like 67 with a Hemi. It was just an incredible car. So I, I, I get out of the car and I move back a couple of steps and I look and I go, this is my dream car. I've always wanted this car. So I go over to Jerry and I said to him, hey, listen, I love that GTO. I love the offer, but I'm going to decline. Can't take it, but I thank you. And he goes, all right, let's go to lunch. Never even asked me why, nothing. Just let's go to lunch. I'm walking out of the place. I'm thinking it's too late to ask him. I tell him I changed my mind. And I'm kicking myself <laughs> about it. Just kicking my, how, you, how could you do this? How could you turn down this car? So I get back to my hotel room and uh, I call a friend of mine who's kind of a mentor. And I tell him what happened. He goes, you know, when somebody tells you they want to give you a present, they want to give it to you because they, they like you, they want you to have it and it will make them happy if you take it. You hear me? Mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, I was just too insecure. I didn't think. He goes, forget that. Next time Jerry offers you a car, you take it. So I said, I'm thinking, who, who offers a car twice? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a, it's a one time. That's a one time thing. Yeah. It's a one time, one shot deal. Nobody offers cars even once, but twice. What are the odds? That's like two lotteries in a row. So uh, I'm in LA. I'm, I'm on the 405 freeway with Jerry. He picks me up at my house and he's in this uh, beautiful classic Mercedes, a 1982 Mercedes 300D diesel. And he knows I love the car. He love it. And he says to me, uh, thinking of selling this, you want to buy it? I said, I would love to, but I can't afford it. I don't have the money. And he looks at me, he goes, I, I'll tell you what, you want to give it to you. So now I remember what my friend said. Somebody offers you a car, you better take it. <laughs> so I looked at him, I said, I'll take it. And he goes, good. And he goes, listen, there's only one problem. The radio isn't working well. Do you want me to fix it, then give it to you? Or you want to take it like this? <laughs> so I remember what my friend said, somebody offers you something, take it. So I said, fix the radio. So he goes, okay. And two weeks later, I got a phone call from his assistant. He said, come on down, pick up the car. It's polished, it's clean, new tires, the whole thing. I've been driving the car for eight years. So my advice, if somebody offers you something, whether it's a stick of gum or an airplane, take it. That's great advice. And by the way, it made Jerry very happy because this was seven, eight years ago. He gave me the car. And just about three weeks ago, we were having dinner and I went to meet him and I drove the car there and he was thrilled to see it. He was thrilled to see that it made me happy and I still had it. That's an amazing friendship you guys have. You guys go all the way back, right? We started together. Jerry was working at a place called Bruin Burger. He was a waiter making, you know, and he was driving like a, a Honda 175 motor scooter or cycle or something. And it would take the bus back and forth. And he was living in a studio apartment, one room with George Wallace. They were splitting the rent. So I knew him when he was uh, had no money and no career and just starting out the comic strip. And uh the rest is history. So yeah, we went back and we have a friendship that lasts a long time and uh, there's a lot of trust there. I would never tell people anything that he told me. I would never spill any beans. Not that there's anything anyway, but good when your friends trust you and you trust them. I'm a huge fan of Seinfeld. He was, um, I remember I saw him in concert and as of when I was starting out, I kept that ticket stub. I had a little notebook that I would keep with me always just to jot stuff down. And I had his, that ticket stub taped into the notebook and always had it with me. Nice. For a good 10 years when I started out. I played the big theater downtown with him in Detroit a few times. The Fox Theater? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of times. Yeah. Oldest dressing room or something. But I, I remember we were down there Yeah, together, the Fox, a couple of times. The Fox is amazing. The back, the, in the whole green room and the whole back area of the Fox. Incredible. I've had yeah. tours of it. Yeah. I think, I wonder if that was where we played. No, I was thinking Evil Knievel came back to see us one night. Thought maybe it was in Detroit. I don't know. <laughs> That's amazing. So you, you must have a, a million. Who else? You also came up with Paul Reiser, right? 
I certainly did. He was just on my podcast, uh, two episodes. We broke him into two episodes, uh, Paul one and Paul two. Paul and I go back. Also, we started together. You know, on any given night at the comic strip, it was Paul Reiser, Jerry Seinfeld, Gilbert Gottfried, George Wallace. You know, you name it. That was that was the show every, on any given night when it first started out. But yeah, Paul and I, uh, and he's been very kind to me, put me on a couple of his uh, TV shows. He gave me a job writing on Mad About You. Gave me a blurb for my book. Jerry gave me the forward of the book. So it's all good. It's amazing. I'm waiting for all the friends I, I had to get famous with the, from when I started. Yeah. When they do, jump on the bandwagon really quick because it doesn't last forever. I, I already have it down. When they ask me for a car, I'm going to say yes. Would you like yeah. this car? Yes. Yes. One night, you know, Paul is so funny. He's like one of the funniest guys in the world. And we were in Paris, me, Jerry, Paul, guy named Michael Hampton, Kane. And Paul had a, uh, a Peugeot, which is a French car. And we're walking towards the Eiffel Tower. And he says to me, you know, as long as I'm here in France, I might as well pick up some parts for my car. And it was just such a funny <laughs> off the cuff. I almost doubled over. I don't know why it just hit me at that moment that it was hysterical. And Larry Larry Miller was the other one, part of the, our group. That's quite a group. I had an opportunity to work with, you mentioned George Wallace. I worked with him, but I didn't really get to meet him. It was like a theater show. So like I went on, he went on, and that was that was it. There was no real hangout time. I right. did work with Gilbert Gottfried and got to hang out with him. Back, wow. Backstage a bit. I, it was always amazing to me. I, like, I think when the documentary came out, it made it clear to everyone that how different he was when he wasn't that onstage character. And really nice guy, really nice guy. Quiet, shy, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. I spent a lot of time with Gilbert. Coming up, when we first started, we would be at the improv every every night around eight o'clock trying to get on. And we didn't get on for years. We would just put our time in and, and hang around. And around 10.30, we realized that's it for the day. We're not getting on here. And we would walk about two miles maybe three miles to catch a rising star in the east side of Manhattan. And we just uh, take a one hour stroll every night together and just talk. And uh, then after uh, the show was over and whether we got on or not, we, me and him and a bunch of people, we go out to a place called the green kitchen around four in the morning and just have coffee and muffins and just chat until sun came up. And then we go to bed. That's awesome. Great stories. Great memories. Tremendous. I was sorry that he uh, passed on. Yeah, he, when he passed on, I feel like it was such a shock. I mean, maybe people close to him knew he was sick, but I don't think it was at all public. I didn't know. I heard towards the end that he was sick, but I didn't know how sick. That was one of those where everyone went, what? Yeah, it was like, there's certain people you just always feel are going to always be around. They're so uh, bigger than life in terms of the characters that they are. Yeah, his documentary was really interesting. You know, uh, how, you know, his wife really was like a lifesaver, you know, just taking care of him and helping him because Gilbert was... You know, he's an oddball and he, he didn't know how to do life. And then came this beautiful woman and they got married and he had kids. Nobody ever thought Gilbert would get married, have kids. But she came along and uh, helped him make it happen. It's nice. Sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation with Mark Schiff. Amazing stories. Am I right? Got to take a quick break. And we're back. And now more with Mark Schiff as we dive into his friendship with Paul Reiser. And we're back. Paul Reiser, I think like uh, mad about you. It's just like at that moment in time. I, I think I, I remember watching my two dads, but I know you're on, on right. both those, but the uh, right. mad about you was right. I think at the time where I was a newlywed, it was like him and Helen Hunt, like all of us were, would watch that show and it just resonated and really clicked with us. I always, and then his, his books, I think at the time, like was it fatherhood or something like that or parenthood? Yes. Or? Yeah. Parenthood, fatherhood. Yeah. At that moment, it was so in sync. And then Seinfeld, it's just funny. I remember Seinfeld was like one of those things at college because like when you watch Seinfeld, you didn't have VCRs really. I mean, you didn't, you didn't really tape. There were no right. 
I remember like someone calling once during Seinfeld and I remember thinking to myself, who does this? I, people know not to call at 9 p.m. on a Thursday. Right. It's like, these people, this person is no longer a friend. I just I can't have this person right. in my life. That's hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Who calls it whenever it was on nine o'clock or something like that? Yeah. You know, when I did, when I was uh, working on Mad About You as a writer, that was the season that Mel Brooks was on the show. And it was one of the highlights of my life, not only meeting Mel and getting some photos with him, but when you're on the floor writing a show and, and they're taping that night, the show doesn't, if, if a joke doesn't work to the audience, sometimes, so the, the uh, executive producer might go, anybody got anything there to replace it? Really quick, anybody got anything? And uh, I came up with something very quickly for Mel Brooks. And I can't tell you the whole setup, but the punchline was nobody has ever seen a live whitefish. That was the uh, punchline. And it got such a big laugh. I was and coming out of Mel Brooks's mouth. I could not have been happier. It was almost like uh, getting another car. <laughs> well, just even if you saying it now, it made me laugh because I was like, you're right. No, I don't think anyone ever has. You, they're everywhere. Every restaurant has it. <laughs> yeah. It's brilliant, Mark. Brilliant. So you have a podcast. I have a podcast. We're podcast. Everybody has a podcast. Everyone has a podcast. Yeah. It's fun because it's like, you know, what other opportunity would you and I get a chance to talk and, and get to hear these stories firsthand? So it's, it's, I, I like, I love that the medium exists and that it kind of bridges that gap, you know, between, you know, people that don't know each other and that, but have like interests and want to have hear the same kind of stories and stuff like that. I think it's pretty cool. Right. A podcast is that, you know, people are doing it, but it's uh, to do it right is a bit challenging, isn't it? It's a lot of work. It's you know, a lot it's, of tremendous amount of work. I think do you, do you have an editor. I edit everything myself. I'm a one man show. I got a partner. I got a co-host and we have an editor. It's incredible. Then I got to re-listen to them and give notes. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. unbelievable. It's a whole process. It's uh, I I want to trust someone else to edit. <laughs> it would save yeah. my life a lot of time. But it's funny. I think the more I do interviews and stuff, you become sort of a self editor as you're doing sure. it, and you you know like you know you know just to stop for a second if someone coughs, right? You know you know you know how to do something. If I say something I don't like the way I say it, I'll just repeat it because I know I can edit out the first one and sound brilliant. <laughs> you know I mean? Well, you know my my prayer for you may you become so successful as a podcast. You can hire two editors. <laughs> I appreciate because it, that. It, it takes a lot of sweat off your back. We have an editor. She's great, Jennifer. And she. We, I was worried in the beginning, is she going to understand where the jokes are? Because she's not a comedian, but she she's great. She's terrific and gets better and better every day. That's awesome. And my co-host, uh, Lowell Benjamin, is a, a young guy. He's kind of a nerdy guy, which I'm not. And uh, we got a nice little... Uh, rapport going on. He asks really intelligent questions. I just, uh, you know, I don't. And uh, it all works out for the best. Yeah, it's a good. I was listening to uh, Susie Essman interview. She had a beautiful interview with her. Yeah, she's so she, sweet. So amazing. I, You know, it's it's nice too, because you can tell that you have a good rapport. So you bring out things and people start, you know, telling stories. And I think the more comfortable you make people too, they, it, triggers things in their head that they forgot about and then you know and then they'll they share those things as well so it's it's an interesting process the whole conversation and all that kind of stuff well what i try to do is what you're very good at i try to just make people feel comfortable 
And we're not looking to be the smartest podcast or, the, you know, you know, we, we're not doing politics. We're just trying to have some nice chat and we can find out a little about each other. And nobody gets hurt on the podcast. Nobody says anything nasty about anybody else. It's, it's pretty cool. No, it's awesome. I, I, I kind of approach it like I grew up, I love watching like Entertainment Weekly. I love, you know, the, the entertainment shows and reading it. Like that's, that's, that's something that I really have always enjoyed going to Comic Cons, meeting folks there and from uh, movies and TV shows from my childhood or even just recent. To me, it's like, oh, to have the opportunity to, to craft that version of something I'd want to hear, you know, with hopes that other people would too. I feel like that's the approach. Uh, that's uh, the vibe I got right. from, from. Did yours. you hear my episode with Maurice LaMarche? I haven't, I haven't heard that one yet. No. Well, when you like Comic-Con, this is the guy. He's pinky in the brain. He does 500 voices. Ooh. And I got I got uh, Maurice on the show. He's, he's fantastic. He's like one of the top voiceover guys in the business. He's been on a million animated series that you've seen. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm going to check that out. I, I, I just I jotted that down. Maurice <laughs> LaMarche. I'm all over it, Mark. All over it. Oh, I, you know what? Speaking of, I had one question for you. I wanted, I wanted to ask you about the Bob Dylan story. Yes, sir. I'm going to see Bob Dylan Wednesday night at the Pantages Theater in Hollywood. Ooh. I do still know him, or did you just meet him once? Or No, it was a one-shot deal. Never saw him again, probably never will. He was at your house. Yeah, it's it's, an, it's a miracle. I, I've been very blessed. I, I will ask people for certain things, which has to do with them spending a little bit of time with me. I never ask people for money or things. but So, one night I'm in New York. I'm at a place called The Bottom Line, which was a premier club in, L in, in New York. Everybody played there. This one night, there's a singer there. Her name was Buffy St. Marie. She was a folk singer. Right before the show, I see Bob Dylan is sitting in the audience with his wife and some other guy. And he doesn't know me, never saw me. I wasn't even a comedian yet, really. Well, I mean, I just started, right. I went over to this table and I said, hey, Bob, can I get your autograph? And he signed the menu that I had from the bottom line. And then I, I just said to him, if you and your friends have nothing to do after this show, you want to come back to my house for a cup of tea. And he looks at me and goes, all right, I'll be there. <laughs> he said, really? He goes, yeah, just write down your address, man. And I'll come over after the show. I just want to see Buffy. Say hello, I haven't seen her in years, man. So I write down <laughs> my address and I live about six, seven blocks away. And I go home and I'm upstairs, 20 minutes, a half hour. Almost an hour. No, don't do it. I think he's not coming. Then all of a sudden, the doorbell rings. And I have a window that faces the front. And I look out the window. And there's Bob Dylan, his wife, and this guy. And about 100 people that followed him from the bottom line. Because he's like, you know, Bob Dylan. It's like, you know, <laughs> Elvis, Bob Dylan, the Beatles is nothing. I come downstairs. He looks at me. He says to all these people, this is my buddy, man. I got to go. Take care, folks. And he comes upstairs. And he spends 40 minutes in my house. And he wouldn't answer any questions, just kept asking me questions like, what do you do, man? How long have you been doing it, man? How long have you been living here, man? Wow, this is cool, man. It was like a dream come true. That is awesome. Yeah. He hung out for 40 minutes and then he goes, oh, man, I got to go. This has been cool, man. Take care. You know, I've gone to see him five times since then in a concert, but I've never seen him again. And I'm friends with the guy that he was with that night. One night I was in synagogue 25 years ago and there's a guy there. I'm talking to him. And he says his name is Louis Kemp. I go, Louis Kemp. That, and I remember, I said, you were at my house with Bob Dylan one night. And it ended up that this guy, Louis Kemp, was Bob Dylan's road manager when they grew up together in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. So uh, I became friends with him. I never saw Bob again, but uh, amazing, right? 
That is so cool. Well, allow me to share uh, the only rock star that, well, rock star, folk star that ever was at my house. I was too young to appreciate it at the time, but Mary Travers, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Love it, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Mary Travers spoke at my temple, and my mom was, I think, maybe on the committee or something that brought her there, and they established a friendship. They became friends, and they would talk on the phone long after that. But at, wow, it must have been after it. She was at my house, my parents' house. I remember because like she drank from this uh, Tweety Bird cup. We don't have it anymore, but I mean, we always used to talk about it. And she hung out in the living room, talked to my parents. I mean, I would have been so young, probably barely even would have known who Peter Paul Mary was, but I knew she was somebody. She gave me an autograph on computer paper, you know, the kind that you would tear off and had to rip the yeah. sides off. So she sure. she signed. I have a Mary Travers autograph. Uh, that I have on my wall. And uh, <laughs> it was just, it was just like, it's just a cool story. I wish I was old enough to appreciate it a little bit more. But we did go to the concert and backstage, it was my grandfather's birthday, and backstage they sang him Happy Birthday. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. Isn't that cool? I love Peter, Paul, and Mary. In fact, Mary Travis had an apartment on 57th Street that when you, you came, off the 59th Street Bridge, I know this for a fact that when you came off a certain exit of the 59th Street Bridge in Manhattan, you could actually see into Mary's apartment. It was on like on the third floor of like the little five-story building or something. Yeah, I saw them in concert and I love their music. You know, he came to see me one night in uh, Detroit, Bob Seeger, who's a Detroit guy. Love Bob Seeger. I bumped in. I saw him at a, I was at this place called Village Place. It's just like this, doesn't even exist anymore. It's just like, you know, like a diner. And I'm like, I see this older guy wearing a Rolling Stones t-shirt and I'm like, holy shit, that's Bob Seeger. <laughs> tell me, tell me, tell me. I love this. Don't. No, no. I mean, I, I spoke to him at the club once or twice. One of my top favorite 10 songs ever is Against the Wind, which is a Bob Seeger so song. It's so, it, it's so incredibly deep and long lasting. Such a great guy. And he's such a lover of comedy. He used to come to the club a whole bunch to see people. I was just going to say, Mark Ridley's got pictures of him and Bob Seeger golfing on the wall when you when you're at the club yeah yeah very extraordinary so that's one of the blessings about working with jerry you know every once in a while somebody like super famous that you've always loved your whole life comes backstage you get to meet them and say hello that's always nice and everybody's always very nice in that situation that's really cool seeing bob seeger in concert was one of the highlights i think of of my concert going career <laughs> yeah no i'm going to see dylan in 340 dollars a ticket Ooh. yeah 15th row center but i'm i'm thrilled bob dylan is one of the greatest artists the world has ever produced. There's nothing like him for solo singer, songwriter. There's never been even anybody close to him. I mean, you know, Paul Simon wrote songs, but he didn't come close to Bob. He's unbelievable. He's a genius, but he didn't come close to Bob Dylan. 39 studio albums, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs and writings and books. If you never read Bob Dylan's uh, autobiography, volume one, called volume two is coming out soon, uh, you should read it. Oh, okay. I'll check it out. I, uh, I'm i a fan of Bob Dylan. A, a friend of mine was a super, super, super fan. It's called Chronicles. It is one of the great uh, masterclasses on being an artist. I'm going to check that out. Thank you for that recommendation. I also read another great book the other day, Travels with Charlie by uh, Steinbeck, John Steinbeck. Tremendous book. It's a lot of reading and I got to squeeze in your book when it comes out. So, <laughs> Yeah, why not? I did want to ask you about, I know when it, your early influence was your parents' took you to a nightclub and you saw Rodney Dangerfield and that kind of set you on the path. You got to know Rodney later, yes? Yes, I did very well. Rodney changed my life, right? When I was 12 years old, my parents took me to a nightclub called the Boulevard Nightclub in Queens Boulevard in Rigo Park, Queens. We lived in Forest Hills. I never seen a comedian live. 
Maybe I saw him on TV. We're all dressed up. In fact, hold on one second. Just one second. Don't go away. Okay, well, this is me not going away. Still here? Hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm doing nice things for you. Hold on. <laughs> I don't know if you can see this, but- Photo, yeah. This is a photo of the night I decided to become a comedian. Oh, that's so cool. We're at the uh, Boulevard nightclub, and I'm all in suit and tie, and my father's all dressed up, my mother. And this is the night that Rodney Dangerfield- came out and opened the show it was the first night I ever saw a comedian in my life. As soon as he came out and started telling jokes and I had no idea what these jokes meant because I was 12. Like he would do jokes. Like my wife is like a car in the winter. Sometimes I can't get her to turn over. <laughs> you know, who knows what that joke means now I do because I'm married. <laughs> Isn't it amazing though, that the rhythm of a joke and just how he would do it would still make you laugh. Unbelievable. So I decided that night to become a comedian. I never looked back and I became friends with him. I told him that story. We were, there's a great story, which is not in the book. It should be in the second book. Seinfeld and a comedian named Steve Middleman. One day we find out we're in LA and we find out that Rodney is appearing in Vegas. And we're, we're basically, you know, this before Jerry had his show, we had no money. We got into Jerry's car, which was a uh, Fiat. And we drove to Vegas. We had no money, no hotel. We we're going to drive there, try to see Rodney for free and uh, come home. So we get to Vegas, park the car, go to the uh, show where Rodney is. We, he, the maitre d' says tickets. And we say, we don't have any. We're comedians. He goes, you're comedians? Say, yeah, we're comedians. We're friends of Rodney. Now, we didn't know Rodney, but we had met him once at Catch a Rising Star in New York for like a second. Yeah, we're comedians. And he said to come by. So the guy says, let me, I'll be right with you. He goes backstage, comes back out and says, okay, Rodney says, I'll give you a seat and then go back to see him after the show. Unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. So we're sitting in a booth. We watch the show. It's unbelievably great. We go backstage and Rodney's like, who the hell are you guys? I don't remember you. <laughs> and uh, we said, uh, yeah, we were Catch a Rising Star. And he goes, where are you staying tonight? So we said, uh, tell you the truth, Rodney, we don't have any money. So we're going to drive back tonight. We have no money for a hotel. He goes, no money. How the hell you come to Vegas with no money? Were you out of your friggin' minds? <laughs> so he goes, uh, my manager, he's, he tells us, he goes, my manager, I have an extra room for him, but he's not here. You can have his room if you want. And he says, whatever you do, don't make any long distance calls and screw me. <laughs> so uh, then he goes, all right, let's go to dinner. And he takes us out to a Chinese restaurant in the, in Caesars. And the waiter comes over and goes, can I help you? Oh, Rodney. And Rodney goes, yeah, I want matzo ball soup. Who eats matzo ball soup in a Chinese restaurant? So the waiter knows Rodney. He goes next door to the deli and gets matzo ball soup and brings it back to Rodney. And uh, we spent that night with Rodney. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And we had the hotel and then we drove back. to Anyway, we became friends with him. And I'll end the story with um, when Rodney was uh, dying in a hospital at UCLA, his wife called me and said, Rodney will probably be gone by tomorrow. If you want to go up and say goodbye to him, please do. He won't recognize you because he's kind of out of it. You know, he's so I went up there and there's a Jewish prayer called the Shema. Sure. And Shema Yisrael. And that's one of the things that Jews are supposed to say on the deathbed. If you can remember it and whatever, you're supposed to say the Shema. And I took Rodney's hand and he was out of it, but I did the Shema with him and he passed the next day. So I felt really good about that. Mark, that's beautiful, actually. Uh, that's really, I, thank you for sharing that. I, that's very touching. I moved. Yeah, well, he was, he was a good guy and, a, and yeah. an incredible gift for humanity. And I'm, I'm glad we, I had that time. And uh, Everyone has uh, a Rodney story and they're always great. And it's always how generous he was and sometimes involves a bathrobe and sometimes <laughs> it's, like, it's, always, sure. it's always something. But it was like, it's nice to know that, you know, someone was so great that existed. Do you think there's anyone 
that kind of matches him. I don't mean from a comedy point of view, but just from a generosity point of view right now that gives as much as he gave to up and coming comedians. And Yeah, there's there's uh, there's uh, a bunch of people that are very helpful. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Jerry's very helpful to a lot of people. No doubt about that. You know, if uh, he knows you and you need something, he's he makes a lot of phone calls and helps people and uh, stuff like that. Leno was always very good. You know, there's a lot of stories about Leno that say things different. I, that's not been my experience. Anytime uh, we needed something or something, he was always there. I, I told him about my son. He gave him a job. And now my son is a big agent at CAA, big comedy agent, because Leno gave him a break and let him come in as an intern. It's awesome. I found that most comedians have a, a pretty good heart. They're sensitive people. I, th- I agree. I agree. I think... Um... Because it's so hard coming up. Maybe it's just everyone just happens to talk about Rodney so much. They I do. Just, well, yeah. he was he was very unique in yeah. that respect. Uh, you know, he, he was responsible for uh, Andrew Dice Clay and uh, Sam Kennison. And Roseanne. Roseanne. He cut a lot of people breaks. He got upset at me one time. He called me to do his uh, Young Comedian special. And everyone on the show was, was a really deeply blue act. You know, worked really dirty. In hindsight, I should have done it, I think. But I didn't do it. I turned him down. I said, listen, I don't want to be on a show with all these guys cursing your head off like that. You know, I, he said to me, you know, you're, you're out of your friggin' mind. You know, I'm giving you a break here. I'm trying to help you. And uh, I didn't do it. And I don't know if it would have made a difference. I don't think it would have hurt me at all. It probably would have helped me. But that's where I was at that time. But again, you know, he just called me out of nowhere and offered me a slot, which was uh, I'm forever grateful for. That's really nice. Who else was on the show that was at the Sam Kinison one and all that? Yeah, that was with Sam and uh, somebody else. I remember working with Andrew Dice Clay when we first started. We worked at a place called Pips in Brooklyn. It was very famous in New York. George Schultz was the owner, and he actually gave Rodney his name, Dangerfield. Really? Before that, he was Jack Roy. <laughs> and uh, so we gave him the uh, the name. And um, Andrew Dice Clay used to just do impressions of Stallone and this guy. And he worked very clean. And, he, and there was no resemblance to what he does now. He's truly a funny guy and a terrific actor, Clay. I think his acting is amazing. And that yeah. And that Bradley Cooper movie with um when he played uh, yeah. Lady Gaga's father, there was a scene yeah, in it's that. It's tremendous. That I'm, I'm just like I could watch this scene over and over again. It's like it was yeah, so genuine. Tremendous guy. He was great in um Pam and Tommy Allen, too. It's been Yeah, terrific. And he was in Woody Allen movie. I'm not sure and, I saw uh, I saw that one, but yeah. <laughs> he also had his own TV show a couple of years back on Showtime, which I think was two seasons or something, but I I thought it was terrific. He yep. played himself, you know, this guy who was a really big comedian. They wiped out. Nobody wanted to hear from him anymore. And he was trying to come back to a comeback. It was an interesting show. Oh, I think I remember that. It was called Dice, I think. It'd be nice to see him break out into break, you know, re-break out into, I mean, obviously he was the biggest at one time, but like even as an actor, just to kind of be seen as that. One last question. Louis Anderson. I, I saw that he had a quote on your book. Were you friends with him? Yeah. So Louie and I, when I got out to California, he was uh, at the comedy store. And one thing, Louie and I had something in common. We both had wacky childhoods and we both did family comedy. He talked about his mother, his father, his brother. So, you know, he talked about all that stuff on stage. And he also worked very clean, Louie. We kind of gravitated towards each other. And I uh, did family stuff and he was always very nice to me. When I did my first book, gave a story, and then he gave me the uh, this for the book. And I was so sorry to see him go, too. Nobody, you know, we didn't think Louie would live a long time because he was so heavy for so many years. And, uh, you know, I didn't really lose a lot of weight. Started getting weak. And when he went to Vegas, he had to sit down and do his shows and stuff. But 
And he just, uh, he just, he just disappeared one day, but he was a true talent too. And a very, very sweet guy. Very, very sweet guy. That's the impression uh, I had of him. I always thought he was like one of the funniest and just seemed like such a nice, nice person. Very gentle, very funny and gentle. You know, he had a style about him. He he didn't really pound it out. He just kind of just chatted it out like an old folklore guy. I loved him. Tremendous. Mark, you got so many great stories. I I know you just scratched the surface. I want to thank you for hanging out with me. It's it's so cool. My pleasure. I'm glad we got this together and I'm glad you're feeling okay. And, uh, Go listen to, uh, when you get a chance, go listen to Maurice LaMarche, You Don't Know, on You Don't Know Schiff. And uh, you can pre-order the book, anybody that's listening, on Amazon. Why not? Why not? Lessons on comedy, courage, and chutzpah. 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 <laughs> that, that's, that'll be the name of the, of the episode. Uh, Mark Schiff has chutzpah. That, that, yes, that'll sir. Be, that'll be a good name. So yeah, I'll put links to everything in the show notes, your podcast, the book, and all that kind of stuff. So appreciate that, brother. People can get to it and enjoy your goodness. And thank you. And if you get a chance, uh, you come out to LA, get in touch with me and uh you know we'll we'll hang out. Go up to Bel Air and buy a place for thirty million. And if you happen to offer me a car, I will say yes. Okay. But it'll be a little it'll be a little uh a little car. But it's still a, a car. Right? car. It's like- yeah, it's still a car. I will offer you one of those. What were those cars? We had Aurora. We had Aurora cars when I was growing up. We had like Matchbox. Did you ever have the ones that I was talking about yesterday that you wound up and it went into a wall and exploded? It like (laughs) the doors would fly off. They were crash mobiles. I kind of can picture what you're you're talking about, but I don't think I had those. You put it together in like six pieces. Yeah. And then it had one of those wind up things that when you let it go, the back wheels would go. Sure, sure. And then go into a warm boom. The you know, the the hood would fly off and the it was the greatest. I could do that for like six hours straight. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Well, Mark. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Be well. All right. How amazing was that conversation with Mark Schiff? In the beginning of the interview, when he mentioned he was glad I was feeling well, it's because I had recovered from COVID. I had to postpone the interview and he was just checking in to see how I was because he's a mensch. So definitely check out Mark's podcast. It's really awesome. You don't know Schiff. You can get it wherever you listen to this podcast. It's everywhere. Also, amazing interviews as well. Also, pre-order and then, or get his book, depending on when you're listening to this episode of the podcast. Why not? Lessons on comedy, courage, and chutzpah. One of the extra perks of this episode is learning how to pronounce the word chutzpah. Get your ch going. DM me on any of the socials if you need help with the ch in chutzpah. <laughs> anyway, so check out Mark's book. Check out his podcast. If he comes to your town, check out his comedy as well. Well, with the interview over, join me one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free, hashtag Roundup app at the Google Play Store or iTunes App Store. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag Roundup. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. This episode's hashtag, of course, inspired by the episode, my interview with Mark Schiff. Hashtag a movie or show gets a car from Wag Your Tags, a weekly game on hashtag Roundup. Hashtag a movie or show gets a car. And we all know now from listening to the episode, if someone offers you a car, you take the car. All right, this is the ultimate mashup of a movie or show and mash it up with an automobile. 
I know. Could there have been a more perfect hashtag for this episode? I do not think so. All right. If you got your own, tweet your own and tag us at Jeff Jawaskin Show on Twitter. I'll show you some Twitter love in return. In the meantime, here for inspiration are some hashtag a movie or show gets a car tweets. Pretty in pink Cadillacs. Big chitty chitty bang bang theory. Silence of the Lamborghinis. Hello, Clarice. Vroom, vroom. How I Met Your Motor, The Mandalorian. That's a good one. All of these are awesome. Hashtag a movie or show gets a car tweets. Live and let drive. Uncle Buick, The Ford and the Stone, National Lampoon Spring Break, B-R-A-K-E. More of a visual and you're listening, so I just wanted to make sure everyone was on the same page. Nissans of Anarchy, How Stella Got Her Gremlin Back. Awesome. Hashtag a movie or show gets a car tweets. But we're not done. Any given Hyundai, two inches. This car is going to move two inches. That was horrible. I apologize. Captain America Motors, a fish called Honda. My three Datsuns, hatchback to the future. Racing Arizona, Indiana Jones in the tempo of doom. And our final hashtag, a movie or show gets a car hanging with Minnie Cooper. Alrighty. Those are some awesome hashtag a movie or show gets a car tweets. If you're inspired, head to Twitter. Tweet your own with the hashtag and tag us at Jeff DeWaskin Show. Like I said, I'll show you some Twitter love. I'm repeating myself, but I think it's worth it. All right. Well, with the hashtag over and the interview over, it can only mean one thing. That's right. Episode 170 has come to an end. Why does the time go by so quickly? I don't know. Must be because we're having fun. Well, I want to thank my special guest, Mark Schiff, for joining me today. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. You know it does. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.